0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barron. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders, and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at thesustainabilityagenda.com. End Climate Silence is a volunteer organisation that pushes the news media to cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. With digital activism and direct outreach, it works to change the paradigm for climate journalism. Climate is not simply a science or environmental story, but the essential context for every story journalists are reporting. End Climate Silence also works to get fossil fuel money out of journalism, to break up corrupt alliances between news executives and fossil fuel companies. Learn more at endclimatesilence.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Catherine Hayhoe back to the Sustainability Agenda. Catherine is an atmospheric scientist, a professor of political science at Texas Tech University, where she's co-director of the Climate Science Center, And she's recently become chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, the world's largest conservation organization. Catherine is renowned as one of America's most effective climate change communicators. And her new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, has just been published. So thank you very much, Catherine, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, it's only a year ago. Uh, I was just checking since we spoke. It seems like a lot longer, um, a lot of momentum, a lot of change. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to talking, through about your, your new book, which is just coming out, and uh, some some other work you've been doing. Uh, just by way of introduction, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and what you're working on, Catherine?
1: Absolutely. So I am a climate scientist, I really am one of those people who study what we are doing to our planet. And specifically, I look at how climate is changing in the places where we live and how our choices will determine our future in terms of how climate change will affect our health, our food, our water, our infrastructure, the economy, um, plant and animal species, and most of all, our children in the next generation. So... In addition to being a climate scientist, I'm also a professor at Texas Tech University. I actually teach in the political science department because climate change is the most political science there is in the United States. And I recently joined the Nature Conservancy, which of course is the world's largest conservation NGO as their chief scientist, because the Nature Conservancy understands, as so many of us are starting to today, that climate change is a threat multiplier. We can't fix anything else that's wrong with the world if we don't fix climate change, too. And the good news is a lot of climate solutions are solutions that are also good for our health, for the economy, for our safety and our food and our water, and for the welfare of every living thing that shares this planet with us.
0: Great. Yes, you've got a full plate. Um, Now, what? uh, Clearly, as you mentioned, we're uh, in in the midst of many uh, environmental climate crises with the COVID as well. Um, I'm just wondering uh, what's most on your mind. We just had a new IPCC report out. Um, You'd be very familiar with the with the contents of that, uh, and 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 very closely involved over over many years. What what worries you the most about this particular moment, Catherine?
1: The two words that come to mind right now are urgency and agency. Urgency because we've known since the 1850s that digging up and burning coal back then, and now oil and natural gas, is producing heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around our planet. We today can put numbers on just how much worse climate change made specific events that are already occurring today. Not in the future, not down the road, not far away, but right here in the places where we live. I'm from Canada and we had a record-breaking heat wave this past summer followed by wildfires and climate science can now say that human-caused climate change made that Heat wave at least 150 times more likely than it would have been otherwise. I live in Texas, where Hurricane Harvey in 2017 devastated the Houston area. And we know that about 40% of the rain and three quarters of the economic damages would not have occurred if the same hurricane had happened 100 years ago. So the urgency of action is paramount. And the key conclusion of the IPCC is simply this. Every year counts. Every action matters. Every choice can make a difference. But that leads directly into the second word that's at the top of my mind after urgency, which is agency. Often, we feel paralyzed by this global problem. We think, well, I'm not a CEO or a celebrity. I'm not a president or a prime minister. What am I supposed to do about this? How can we tackle this? Fossil fuels are woven into almost every aspect of our lives. How can we fix climate change before it overwhelms us? And that's really where the new book I wrote comes in called Saving Us, it is a response to the number one question that I have gotten from almost anyone, anywhere in the UK, in Europe, in North America, and beyond over the last few years, and that question is, "What gives you hope?"
0: Yes, absolutely, and they're, they're, it's your new book is wonderful and full of uh, examples of conversations, of dialogues that uh, that are are producing change, new perspectives, and uh, very interesting uh, ideas about why that's important and how to do that. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. We, we started off on on a, a, a pessimistic note. What makes you most optimistic about this moment, Catherine?
1: Thank you. That's exactly the right question to ask. And you know now it's not the science. That is not what makes me optimistic. But what does make me optimistic is the fact that our choices can and will make a difference. They will literally determine our future. It is not too late to avoid the worst of the impacts, but in order to do so, we must act. And if we believe that we're doomed, then we will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you think we're doomed, it's all over, there's nothing we can do, well, then we won't do anything and we will be doomed. But the reality is, is that climate action is not a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep hill with only a few hands on it. That boulder is already at the top of the hill. It is already rolling down the hill in the right direction. That boulder has millions of hands on it. From the UK, from Canada, from the US, from Australia, from India, from Africa, from China and beyond. The world is changing. 90% of new energy installed in 2020 during the COVID pandemic was clean energy. Businesses are changing. Cities are taking action countries are joining in. Action is happening. And how does it start? It doesn't start when that CEO or celebrity or president or prime minister says it has to. Change happens when ordinary people, individual people like you and me and everybody listening decides, you know what, the world can be different. The world must be different. And so we use our voices to start talking about why climate change matters and what we can do to fix it and what we're doing ourselves and what our place of work can do or a place of worship or our neighborhood or our town or any organization that we're involved in, how each of us can make a difference. And that action is actually what gives us hope. Uh,
0: very good. And and, and I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. Just one quick question, something that I, I, I know is close to your heart and you've spoken about and probably can't be said enough. And uh, I, I think has uh, we don't hear enough about, I think, is is the relationship between climate, climate emergency, climate, uh, global warming and poverty.
1: Well, that exactly is why I became a climate scientist myself, I had always thought of climate change as a young person, you know, growing up in the eighties and the nineties, I had always thought of climate change as an environmental issue that environmentalists like Jane Goodall and David Attenborough and David Suzuki in my home country of Canada, that they cared about and they were working on fixing for us for the future and that the rest of us wished them well and watched their documentaries and supported their organizations. And. I I always thought, well, you know, I wish I were good at those types of things, but what I'm good at is science. So I'm going to study science. And I was almost finished my undergraduate degree in astrophysics, planning on studying galaxies clustering around quasars, when I serendipitously had to take an extra class to finish my degree. And I looked around and there was this extra course that had just this new course that was just being offered for the first time on climate science. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why don't I take it? So I took that class, and I was completely astonished to learn, first of all, what we just talked about, that climate change is no longer a future issue. It's no longer a distant issue. It is already affecting us here and now, and it was already doing so in the 1990s. But then the second thing I learned is that climate change is not only an environmental issue. Climate change is also a health issue. Climate change is an economic issue. Climate change is an issue of food and water and national security, but most of all, climate change is a justice issue because it disproportionately affects the very people who have done the least to cause the problem, the people who are living on a dollar or two a day, the people who are not able to feed their children or have a safe place to live. The very people who the sustainable development goals of no poverty and no hunger and clean water, such very basic things that we all take for granted, the very people the sustainable development goals are intended to help, those are the people who are most affected by climate change. Because when a drought happens, they don't have crop insurance. They don't have a nice bank account to tide them over. When the floods come and wash away their homes, how do they rebuild? Where do they live? Climate change is disproportionately affecting the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. And when I learned that, that's when I realized I have to do everything I can to help. And so I I was good at science. I thought, well, I'll be a climate scientist, but somebody else might be good at, you might be good at law or medicine or communication or activism, whoever we are, we all have unique abilities, unique skills, unique interests, and every single one of us can use those to make a difference. Because using our voice, like I said, is the most important thing that we can do. And so that's why I wrote my book, Saving Us, so that everybody knows that, you know what, we all have something we can do about this problem. We all have agency to address the urgency of this issue. And by taking action, that is where we all find hope.
0: That's very interesting because you say as a scientist, but also you're a a, a great communicator and a very committed communicator. And this comes through in your book, the the number and variety of conversations, not all of them easy, many of them uh, uh, the opposite. Uh, conversations about climate. Now, w- why does talking about climate uh, matter so much? I mean, some people might say, you know, the time for talk is over. We, we need action now. So, so uh, what, what kind of talk? And, and maybe then we can go on to, uh, you know, how to do that skillfully.
1: Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because you're absolutely right. A lot of people would say, you know, talking, the time for talking is past. We need action. But here's the thing. First of all, talking is an action. You literally have to decide to do it and then you actually do it. And second of all, surveys show that people are not doing it. So those of us who are worried about climate change, we might feel like we're talking about it so much that we feel like a broken record. I don't know about you, but I certainly feel like a broken record myself as a scientist. But when we look across the community in the U.S. where I live, in Canada where I'm from, even in the U.K., When we look at news coverage, too, we see that, for example, something horrifying, you know, there's the the billionaire's space race between Bezos and Branson. So that got more coverage, the space race, than all of climate change in the previous year in the United States, at least. But we see similar patterns in other countries. And here's the connection. If we don't talk about something, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we ever want to fix it? So I think of these conversations as knocking over the first domino in that chain of action that leads us to fixing climate change. And what do we talk about? We don't have to talk about the science. We need to talk about why it matters. And we need to talk about what we are doing, what other people are doing, what others we know are doing, what people who inspire us are doing to help fix it. So talking is not sufficient. Of course not. We need to be doing things, but talking is almost like the, um, well, it's, it's like knocking over that first domino. It's the, the first step to getting that giant boulder rolling down the hill to getting more hands on the boulder, connecting the dots on why it matters to us as an individual personally, where we live and what we can do to fix it.
0: In our conversations, Catherine, how much emphasis should we put on individual behavior, on personal consumption vis-a-vis bigger social political actions? I mean, I know yourself, you've changed your personal behavior, but political change is essential, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. And the most often people look for the most important thing that they can do to be something that they change in their lives. And don't get me wrong, that is important. And I do it too. I stepped on the carbon scales. I found that the biggest part of my personal carbon footprint was, as I talk about in the book, was my travel. And I'm not talking about vacations. I don't know when I've last taken a vacation that wasn't, that wasn't just to see family living in Texas, being from Canada. But it was traveling to scientific meetings and conferences and to talk to people about climate change. And so I thought to myself, how ironic is this, that that's the biggest part of my footprint? So a number of years ago, I decided that I was going to completely change the way that I traveled. I was going to transition at least 80% of the talks that I give, and I give about 100 a year, to virtual talks and I did. And then when I travel in person, I bundle events together such that the average footprint per event is as if I got in my little plug-in hatchback and drove maybe an hour or two away from home. So I bundle to the extent where, you know, if I'm going not too far away, it might be five or six events. If I'm going a little farther, it might be 15 or 20 events. If I'm going even farther, it might be as many as 25 or 30 events in the same week-long trip to make sure that I'm using every ounce of carbon I produce as efficiently as possible to get the word out to as many people people as possible. For others of us, it might be where we live. It might be our commute. It might be what we eat. That could be a huge part of our carbon footprint. Making personal changes is important, but it's not sufficient. Because even if all of us changed our light bulbs, got solar panels, drove a plug-in car, or got rid of our car entirely, ate a plant-based diet, even if we all did that, all of us who were alarmed, as I calculate in the book, that wouldn't even add up To 10% of our national emissions. Why? Because so much of it comes from industry. So much of it comes from large scale systems. And so much of it also comes from people who are not going to make those changes unless they see that it's actually easier to do so and better to do so and cheaper to do so. And that's why we need system-wide change. And how do systems change? When individuals use their voices to talk about the changes they're making in their personal lives but also the changes that we need to make as an organization, as a business, as a city, as a neighborhood, as a state or a country. Using our voices is so powerful. That is the way that the world has changed before with slavery, with women getting the vote, with civil rights and more. All of those things changed when individuals decided, no, the world cannot be this way. It should not be this way. It must be different because this is not fair. This is not right. This is not just. And a better world is possible. Today, what we so often lack is not apocalyptic visions of the future. We have those in spades. What we lack is that positive vision of what a better future truly would look at like where we get our energy from clean sources that don't pollute the air, leading to almost 9 million premature deaths per year from air pollution from fossil fuels. A world where energy is available to all, the nearly billion people who don't have access to affordable electricity. A world where we have enough food and we're not wasting almost 50 percent of it in rich countries while people go hungry. And a world where we live in balance, with nature and we recognize that we are all sharing this planet this home that we have that a planet that is finite that has enough but not enough for everybody to live in the way that we're currently living. So that vision of a better future, that that vision is what we're missing. And that vision is part of what I feel like we need to talk about, because it's not just about avoiding the apocalyptic threat, the end of civilization as we know it, if climate change continues unchecked. It's also about heading towards something better.
0: And I, I do want to get into that in a little bit more in depth. You talked about the urgency and and scientists do tell us that this next decade is important. How important is the next decade and why?
1: Well, there is no magic number that if we do everything we can within 12 or 10 or eight years, then, you know, we'll get off scot-free. And if we miss that deadline by a single day or year, then, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. There is no magic deadline. What the science says What the IPCC says is crystal clear. Every year counts. Every ton of carbon counts. Everything counts because we know that the faster we cut our carbon emissions, the better off we'll be. Now, being humans, we need goals. That's the way we operate, right? We set goals of how much weight we're going to lose or um, how much money we're going to save or how many steps we're going to walk every day. So that's what we did. In 2015, the world got together and set a goal of limiting global warming to at least two degrees Celsius and one and a half degrees if we can. From that goal, we scientists can back out how much carbon we can produce if we truly want to stay, have a decent chance of staying below those goals. And we know that the window of opportunity is closing fast. We are still producing huge amounts of carbon, and we're going to be hitting the limits of what we can produce if we still want to keep those goals very quickly. It's like we're running through our bank account, and we're not leaving ourselves any money for the end of the year. So we need to cut our carbon emissions as much as possible. And that's where the urgency comes in. Yes. But but the reality is, is that everything we do can make a difference.
0: Now, coming back to the, 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 the conversations and, and talking, in in your book, you talk about some uh, research in America. Now, America, clearly very polarised, S- similar trends in, in, in other countries, but it's probably uh, much more extreme. I think it's called the global warming, six Americas. Uh, presumably, these rough categories hold true in other countries, if not the proportions. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about those groups. And maybe, uh, I, I don't know, uh, is, is there something to say about... Uh, uh, modifying how one talks about these uh, about, about uh, climate to to these different groups that might be a little bit much, but at least to just uh, get a sense of these different groups and how they 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 think about climate because I found that very interesting.
1: Yes, so when we talk about climate change, those of us who are already concerned and already activated and already having conversations about it, which I I imagine is many of the people who are listening to this podcast, right? We often make one critical mistake. And that one critical mistake is that we think everybody has to care about it for the same reasons we do. So we are often mostly subconsciously engaging in conversation to try to change people's values and often an even deeper level, change their identity, change who they are to make them like us. So then they will care about it for the same reasons we do. And unless the person you're talking to is your young child, that is going to end in failure. Most people are not looking to change their core values, their core identity. And, and when they engage in a conversation where that is sort of the subtext, not not the not, you know, no one would ever really say that overtly, but the subtext. We pick up on it and it comes across as judgment and condemnation. It comes across subtly as you are not good enough. You do not care about things for the right reason like I do. You need to change who you are because who you are is not enough. And that is not an attractive message. I don't like to talk to people who who are subtly telling me that. I don't know about you, but that's not my favorite thing to do. And it it certainly doesn't make me want to change who I am. It makes me want to dig in my heels because I feel like, I am a good person. I have values that are carefully considered. They are based on my culture. They are based on my heritage. They are based on my family. They are values that I have thought about, that I have consciously decided to adhere to and adopt. And here you are telling me I'm not good enough. I don't like that. So how do we avoid that mistake? We avoid it by recognizing that people don't have to care about climate change for the same reason we do. They don't at all. Because what matters is if they care, not why they care. So someone, just to give a very neutral example, someone might care about it because they're a farmer and they want to make sure that they can still grow their crops somebody else might care about it because they enjoy an activity, anything from tennis to winter skiing, that's affected by climate change. Somebody else might care about it because they are really into wines and they know that the quality of Bordeaux and Californian wines are already being affected by climate change. And then someone else might care about it for the reason you do or for the reason I do. And I care about it because it's a justice issue and it affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. And as a person of faith, as a Christian, I believe that... Any Anybody who takes the Bible seriously is called to love their neighbor as themselves. And so that's why I care. But I recognize that not everyone has the same faith as I do. Not everyone comes from the same background as I do. Not everyone enjoys or or feels, has the same priorities that I do. And that's okay. I'm not out to turn everybody into, into someone who cares about it for the same reason I do. I think every single person, I'm absolutely convinced That every single person who lives on this planet, who breathes this air and eats this food and depends on this planet for everything they have, they already have every reason they need to care. And our job is not to change those reasons. Our job is to find out what those reasons are. And if they don't think they care, to help them connect the dots between what they already care about, whatever that is, and how climate change is affecting everything that is already at the top of their priority list. And how do we start doing that? We start doing that by asking questions and by listening to their answers before we say anything ourselves.
0: Some solutions should be relatively painless. You talk about food and food waste, clearly in everyone's interest to eliminate food waste. But some changes are going to hit home at a personal level. In the US, personal consumption is is, is a way out of balance. Carbon emissions per capita amongst the highest in the world, successive and unsustainable. How do you talk to people about the changes they might have to make to curb their lifestyles?
1: Such a, a difficult and nuanced issue to unpack. But let me repeat, Our personal choices, and by our, I mean everyone who is already worried enough about climate change and activated enough to make significant changes in their personal lives, our personal choices, those of us in that group, are not even a medium-sized piece of the climate solution pie. They are a small fraction of what's needed. So if we go out there like a new brand of traveling friars, uh, preaching a everybody join our religion and adopt these new 10 commandments in your personal life, we will be preaching until we're all underwater. That is not sufficient to change the system. What we need to change the system is we need everybody, whether or not they are activated on climate change, to understand that if you want to eat a steak, it will cost you a lot more money because you're paying for the damage that that steak is doing to our planet. If you want to drive a gas guzzler, you still can, but you're gonna pay a lot more for your gas because you're gonna be paying for the damages that's causing our planet. And oh, by the way, there's a lot more affordable electric vehicle that's faster and cooler over here. Maybe you should buy that. There's some really good plant-based meat alternatives over here and they're available in your local supermarket or grocery. Why don't you consider those? And. Give them a try at the restaurant. Oh, they're delicious and they're actually cheaper. So we need to make options available to people, even if they are not activated about climate change, to make the right choices, to make the good choices. And to do that, we need policy. Policies like prices on carbon. We're actually paying for the damages that we produce. And that's what we have in my home country of Canada. We have a price on carbon that is already uh, ratcheting up quite quickly. And a price on carbon, interestingly, is the number one solution that just about every economist in the world thinks that we should put in place. Now, of course, a price by itself isn't going to fix anything. But what it will do is it sends a price signal to the market such that people understand that there are better alternatives that give us clean air, clean water, save us money, and help us live healthier lives and fix climate change along the way and that is why using our voices is so important to help people connect the dots between how climate is changing in the places where we live how it's making our floods more frequent our heat waves more intense our wildfires burn greater area our hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons bigger and stronger and much more damaging we need people to understand that there are solutions good solutions It's not pulling the plug and returning to the Stone Age, it's accelerating our transition into the next century. Just like we no longer use Model T Fords and party line telephones, in the same way, in in a matter of years, we could already be looking back and saying, how on earth could people burn all those fossil fuels? Why did we do that? Didn't we understand that that was the way we got energy in the 1800s, but we didn't need to keep using them into the 2100s, why did we cling to them for so long? That's the type of change we need. And in order to do so, we need to use our voices to help everybody understand why change at every level, and again, don't get me wrong, at every level from the individual to the global is necessary. It isn't only about individual action. It is about individual action with all of us working together to affect change at every level.
0: Yes, and I'm just wondering about uh, the question of solutions as well here, because it's quite politicized as well. What well, sounds like an interesting and, and, and a promising solution, when you unpack it a little bit, you see this. it's been put forward by a particular group with a particular agenda. Um, do we need to be talking more about the kinds of solutions and what the, what the implications of different sets of solutions are?
1: Well, let's just be very clear. The only reason there has ever been any discussion on whether climate is changing whether humans are responsible, and whether the impacts are serious is because it's been driven by solution aversion. We have known for decades that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are serious. Scientists were so confident of those three facts that they formally warned a US president of the dangers of climate change In 1965, and that president was Lyndon B. Johnson. For those of us who did not grow up memorizing the names of the U.S. presidents, Um, so the only reason—so why did we still hear discussion of this in the media, in the political sphere? It was because it was a smokescreen, a plausible smokescreen for solution aversion. If you don't want to fix the problem. But you acknowledge that scientists are very clear that it's real, it's us, and it's bad, and it's affecting the poorest and most vulnerable and marginalized people in the world, and you don't want to fix it. That would make you a bad person, right? And no one wants to be a bad person fundamentally, and politicians certainly don't want to be cast as bad people. They want to be good people, people who are solutions-oriented. So what did they do? They had to come up with excuses, not excuses saying I don't want to fix it, but excuses saying, oh, well, we're not sure if it's real. We're not sure if it's humans. We're not sure if it's bad. We're not sure if it's here today. We're not sure that we can fix it. It's probably cheaper just to roll with it instead of fixing it. Or some of them are even saying now it's too late. There's nothing we can do. These are all different flavors of the same thing. Denial of solutions. They don't want to fix it because they're afraid that it might affect their bottom line. It might affect their political support. Uh, It might give somebody else the edge on them. Businesses are worried about their quarterly returns. And so rather than looking 10 years ahead to the future, they're just looking at what's going to happen in the next few months. Politicians are worried about the next election, which is always right around the corner. So they're not worried about what's going to happen in 10 years. They're worried about what's happening in a matter of months as well. And because of this short-termism, the discussion has not focused where it really should have focused, like you said, for years and even decades, it should be focused squarely on solutions. We know climate is changing. We know humans are responsible. We know the risks are very serious. And we know what our options are. Number one, cut carbon emissions as much as possible, as soon as possible. How? Through efficiency. Through efficiency alone, the U.S. could cut its carbon emissions in half. Isn't that crazy? Through clean energy, through electrifying everything we can, through getting that electricity from clean sources, and then through developing carbon-neutral liquid fuels for everything we can electrify. So that's solution number one is cutting our carbon emissions. Solution number two is investing in the biosphere, plants, trees, grasses, soil, and the ocean because together those hold 200 times more carbon than humans have produced since the dawn of the industrial era. And investing in soil management, investing in regenerative agriculture, investing in conservation, investing in reforestation, investing in nature pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and buys us some time. And then the third thing we have to be doing is adaptation. Some of the impacts are already here today and some are unavoidable because of all the carbon we've poured into the atmosphere. We need to be planning for a future where the 500-year flood event happens every 5 years, not every 500 years. Where the st- drought of record is no longer the drought of record, it gets surpassed every decade. We must be mitigating, we must be drawing our carbon out of the atmosphere through nature-based solutions, and we must be preparing for and building resilience to the impacts we can no longer avoid and if, if I could ma- wave a magic wand at the global scale and change our discussion, that's what I would change it to. Let's talk about these solutions. Let's figure out what makes the most sense for us in this place with the resources we have, and let's get it done.
0: That's fascinating. And I think that's something that comes out of your work is something that uh, so often we think about, you know, uh, solutions, maybe the biggest impact solutions that would be the quickest solutions. But I was thinking about solutions that we can agree on because we have such a level of polarization still at at a very deep level uh, in in, in many countries and and politically and so forth, that actually having consensus and uh, an agreement, and that only comes through dialogue, which I think is, again, just the, the really important message in your book.
1: Absolutely. And in my book, I talk about how sometimes when people actually understand what real solutions look like and how they can save us money and clean up the air and be good for the local economy and be good for our lives and our health and our kids. When we understand what real solutions look like, all of a sudden that's what brings people on board and their objections to the science completely disappear. And in fact, my personal favorite story in the book is about John's dad, who his solutions, his his objections disappeared so far that he forgot that he had ever had them. He thought he had always been on board with the science, whereas in (laughs) fact, he had been so hardcore that my poor colleague John could never even have a conversation with his dad without his dad bringing up some objection to climate science. But I won't tell the rest of the story because you have to buy the book to get that story. But that is probably my favorite story talking about the power of good solutions to change people's minds.
0: We talk about individuals, but emissions are very concentrated. Quite a striking statistic Uh, in the Guardian recently that 20 meat and dairy farms emit more greenhouse gas than Germany, Britain or France. We know that the richest 10 percent, of the population account for over half of the emissions uh, added over the last uh, 20 or 30 years.
1: Those numbers you cited are so powerful because they drive home exactly what I was saying, that As individuals, those of us who are alarmed and concerned about climate change could do everything we could in our personal lives. And we would not perceptibly move the needle because so many emissions are focused in so few people. You had some good stats, and here's a couple more. 25 cities and the inhabitants of those cities produce 52% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 90 corporations. Are responsible for two-thirds of all heat trapping gas emissions since the dawn of the industrial era. How do these how do cities change? How do companies change? How do individual coal-fired power plants or big dairy farms change when individuals raise their voices, people who work there? People who are outside and connect with them to say, hey, have you thought about changing what you're doing? People also consumers who say, I'm not going to be using your products. That does have power. And each of us can do that, too. Um, There's also big banks. Certain banks support so much more fossil fuel investment than others. I just found out about that recently. And so I cut up my Chase Bank. Um, cards, I had two of them. I cut them up and I called them and I told them why I was why I was not working with them anymore. And they said, oh well all the banks, all the banks support fossil fuels. I said, not all, most, but you're number one and that's why I'm not going to be using your services anymore. So there are absolutely things we can do, but focusing what we do on the biggest levers, as you say creates the biggest short-term change. And what does every one of these actions have in common? It has in common that we as individuals say, you know what, the future can be different. The future must be different. And I'm going to use my voice in my spheres of influence, wherever I am, wherever I work, wherever I live, whoever I'm connected to. I'm going to be using my voice to advocate for that change, to model that change through my personal life as well, and to help bring others on board, showing them how the values they already have, which may be completely different than mine. The values they already have are the exact values that they need to care about and act on climate change. And in fact, 99 times out of 100, acting on climate change, taking climate action themselves, caring about climate change and talking about themselves is going to help them be an even more genuine expression of their own values than they already are today.
0: Yes, that's a very positive vision. I uh, did an interview with a Johan Prince Prince from uh, an organization called Bank Track, and they track the the money that big banks are putting into fossil fuel. And uh, the the, the big takeaway from that is the the banks care about their reputation and they're all these uh, now these tables and so forth. And they are responsive to uh, uh, how uh, their their clients respond, uh, how consumers respond and where they are on the on on, on the rankings and so forth. Of course, so much more to be done. They've all signed these various accords. It's about uh, climate change, but actually, we follow the money, and there are some great initiatives to to, to follow the money and, and 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 take action on this. There, there is one other uh, slightly depressing uh, question to, to to note, and I guess when it comes to these 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 issues, expectations management is important. And um, if I understand correctly, in, in the IPCC report, the majority of the the scenarios and so forth trajectories. Uh, mean that even if we did make substantial change over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that is not going to show up necessarily right away. And how do we talk about this and think about this? We live in a, a, a very uh, a, a short-termist society. Corporations are short-termist. Uh, we, we, the internet, everything is, is, is moving in that direction. And yet we need to be a little bit realistic here, don't we, about the, how long this has been going on for. I mean, you talk about in the book, it's like a, uh, somebody who's been smoking, for their life and so forth. Can you just talk briefly about that, Catherine?
1: We the carbon that we produce today and the reductions that we are making today, we will not see those reflected in the response of the climate system for at least two decades just because there's a lag, just like the, the hamburger that you eat for lunch today is not going to be reflected in the bu- in the buildup of plaque in your arteries. <laughs> For some time. But that doesn't mean it isn't important. It is very important. We all know that what we eat, how much we exercise, how much money we save in the bank, we might not see the impact of it today, but we know that it is accumulating for our future. With climate action, though, here's the thing a lot of these actions do have immediate benefits. So we might not see the change in global average temperature for two more decades or so, but we will see an almost immediate reduction in, for example, air pollution. And I mentioned briefly before, but I wanna repeat this because this is a number that hardly anybody recognizes or knows. Nearly 9 million people die prematurely every year on average, from air pollution from fossil fuels, that is more than twice the annual number of COVID deaths during the pandemic. Twice that every year from air pollution from fossil fuels. And when we stop burning fossil fuels, we see that air pollution improve in a matter of days to weeks. So that benefit we see right away. We also know that in many places around the world, clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuels for electricity. In fact, in many low-income countries, part of the reason why they're low-income is because they do not have the vast fossil fuel resources that we did in higher-income countries that helped us to develop. But they do have a lot of wind and they do have a lot of sun. And so as I talk about in my book, Saving Us, um, incredible organizations like Solar Sister are investing in women entrepreneurs in some of the poorest places in the world To help them get solar powered energy that they need so their kids can study at night um, so they can walk safely in India, I talk about how they're providing sanitation for many people who don't have access to basic sanitation, and they're taking the human waste and they're turning it into biogas. So there are immediate benefits as well as long-term benefits. And when we talk about nature-based solutions, well, for example, investing in in trees and green spaces in cities, it improves air quality, it provides shade, it reduces the urban heat island effect, it reduces heat stress, it's good for people's mental and their physical health, and it takes up carbon, of course, at the same time. Restoring ecosystems also provides habitat for many um, animal and plant species that might be at risk. It provides ecosystem services like cleaning up our water, and of course it also uh, takes up carbon and protects our coastlines from storm surge. So there's so many solutions that have immediate benefits now that are tangible, that can be quantified, that we can see today, as well as long-term benefits. And the question right now is simply, why not?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, your book is uh, its number, I think, uh, one of the top books at the moment on Amazon in the Christian stewardship area. Um, now, it seems the, uh, uh, it's a big topic here, and I'm, we're coming to the end but uh, of the discussion, but it seems that uh, the Christians uh, in America, that, that uh, faith has been subverted in some way by the Republicans uh, over decades and brought into, and there's this tension between faith and, and, and political uh, beliefs and so forth. Can you talk, to, is that changing? Uh, I, I, I imagine uh, that this is a community that you know well and, and you're talking to, as as well. Can you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. Well, Amazon categories are kind of curious because you don't pick <laughs> yes. them. They, they just kind of shove you into them. Yes. And sa- Saving Us is not a faith-based book per se, but of course yes. it reflects my own perspective, which is, is very, very much grounded on, on my belief that we humans have responsibility to care for every living thing on this planet and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to care for their physical needs. And With climate change exacerbating the suffering around the world, exacerbating the poverty, the hunger, and the inequality, how can any of us as humans not care about this issue? So it fits very much with... Um, the faith traditions of almost any major world religion, but it also fits, fits, I think, with with any of us as humans who understand that we're all in- interconnected. We all live here on this planet. We all breathe the same air. We our, our health literally depends on the health of this planet and of every other living thing on it. And what harms one of us really truly does harm all of us ultimately. So that's why I was so glad to see just today, as we're speaking, that the Pope, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church and the Archbishop of Canterbury together signed a joint appeal on climate change, recognizing that faith-based values, um, Christian values, uh, values from again, almost every major world religion there is, they give us every reason we need to care about why and how climate change affects us and to advocate for climate solutions. And the fact that in the United States, Christianity, both Catholicism and Protestantism in the States, Christianity has become associated with climate denial is to be totally blunt, a perversion of what people believe. It has nothing to do with theology. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says. It has everything to do with politics, with political identity, and with the increase in political polarization that has spread across the U.S. and sadly is spreading around the world as well. Um, It's interesting. I have a little series on YouTube that I do with PBS called Global Weirding. And one of our most, I think our second most popular episode is called, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? And that one is the one everybody wants to know because of all the religiously sounding objections that people have. Oh, God is in control. Why would this happen? The world's going to end anyways. Why do we care? And the fact that there are solid theological answers to those questions saying, well, God put humans in charge of uh, having responsibility. So why aren't we fulfilling that responsibility? And the Bible literally says, well, you don't know when the world is going to end, but right now you've got things to do, taking care of people, carrying out the responsibilities you have here today. So any religiously sounding objections, just as the sciencey sounding objections too, any of these objections are just smoke screens for the real issue. The real issue is People don't want to fix it, and so they come up with excuses why not, and that's why talking about real, meaningful solutions that we can do ourselves, that cities are doing, that corporations are doing, that organizations are doing, real solutions with benefits today as well as benefits for the future, that's what changes minds. And how do we get that word out? By using our voices. That's something that every single one of us can do from the oldest to the youngest.
0: That's a very good advice and, and, and very powerfully put. And thank you so much for your time today. And I highly recommend Saving Us. And it has it's a climate scientist case for hope and healing. And we certainly need that in a divided world. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best with uh, the, the, the coming months as, as you uh, spread the word about the book and also your new work at the uh, Nature Conservancy and all the great work you do, Catherine. And I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, we think you will enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation for an alternative worldview of connectedness. Weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge, it offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.